Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. My guest today is art director Eric Hu. You may know his work as a global design director of Nike, art director for the food magazine Mold, or as a director of design of Montréal-based retailer Essence, not to mention countless other logos, brand identities, and lettering concepts. Eric's recently moved back to New York, and I'm so happy to welcome him home. I'm in love with my Hi, Eriku. Hi, Mary. How's it going? It, it's good. It's good to be back here. Um, thank you for having me on here. You know, big fan of the podcast. It's something I show all my friends. Yay! Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, do you actually remember the first time we actually talked online? I think it was like via Instagram. I think it. I think it was Twitter, maybe, or it might have been Instagram. Wait, it might, yeah. actually might have been Twitter. And I think the the extent of my um, outreach to you was like, Eric. I think you need more magnesium in your diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was going through, like, I think it was, like, the worst bout of, like, panic attacks and, like, anxiety that I've had in my life. And um, it it was, like, every, you know, I, I think, like, multiple times a day I would have these, this, like, debilitating, like, feeling of dread. And this was when I was, like, living in Montreal, about to move, about to move to Portland. And um, you told me about magnesium and that... And I was like, oh, please let that be the, like, please let that be the issue. Because anything else, like, like cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera, like all those things was, were much more costly or much more involved. And, you know, and I didn't think I could, and this was like a very physical sensation I was feeling. I was just getting extreme butterflies in my stomach and like heart palpitations. And it didn't seem like something that I could just like advise myself out of, mm-hmm. you know, or like just get good advice or think happy thoughts to get out of. And, um... So I knew that for a while, but I didn't wait. I waited till I moved to Portland actually to um, to put magnesium because I'm like really weird and I like to try things like during like new chapters in my life and sure. I just like you know keep it up and yeah it was it was good. It was, it was... <laughs> no, but I think the the reason why I felt so um, like let me give unsolicited advice to a friend of a friend who I've never met before, but it, you were you were struggling and um, that really spoke to me. Um, but Yeah. So you are back in New York. You just left your post as global director or global design director at Nike. And I want to just talk about had you was that a dream job for you? Had you dreamt of working there as a kid? No, absolutely not. Um, It's weird. And it doesn't mean that I I, like that. I hated Nike or anything. It's like I Nike. I think it's still my favorite brand of all time. You know, I've owned Nike. Like, there's baby pictures of me with Nike shoes. Like, my my mother dressed me in, like, Velcro Nike, like, baby sneakers and stuff. And and I remember just drawing the logo, like, over and over again when I was, like, four years old, like, on a piece of paper. Um, you know, I think from a very early on, it was a brand that was very seductive to me. And it's something, it's a brand that stayed in my consciousness. Um, I never really had a desire to, to work in there because, um, you know, I think for a lot of reasons. I was just an overweight kid that sucked at sports, um, first and foremost. And number two, like, um, I, it, it, I almost like, I think for most of my life, I ruled out the possibility of working w- with products or working with brands that I actually consume or use. 
That is fascinating. Why is that? Um, I I think like I, I'm not really sure, and it's only been just like the last few years where I'm like where my like my clientele are you know is with music that I listen to, with brands that I purchase, with um you know with writers that I respect. Um, did you have this like notion that you weren't? worthy of it or something or did you have this yeah like- i think there's definitely there's definitely a part of it there's definitely an insecurity like i'm not cool enough for for that stuff i think that was like that growing up a lot of it was like i think a chip on my shoulder growing up in what i felt was like a small town that no one's heard of um and it, it's funny now because like where i'm from the san gabriel valley in california is now like pretty well known like it's it's the subject of a lot of like culinary documentaries. I was gonna say it's delicious there. Yeah, it's um. So I grew up basically in the first Chinatown in the United States. Um, Monterey Park, California, was known as Little Taipei for a long time, and it was you know it it, it now expanded to become the San Gabriel Valley, which is a collection of like a bunch of small cities that have a majority Chinese population, and um. You know, growing up, it was still kind of like the suburbs. And so when I when I would leave town, like nobody would know what city I was from, you know, which is Temple City specifically. And, uh, you know, I would just have to say L.A. or Pasadena. And right. So I even, think there was just a chip on my shoulder. Even on your website right now, it says Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 very like it was like a very like conscious thing for me, too, where I was just like, oh, I'm from a town where. You know, most of my friends will graduate and they'll work at a T-Mobile store or they'll open a vape shop or... Just strip mall life. Yeah, yeah. I think like, or, you know, you might be a club promoter. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that my friends do. Maybe work at city, like work at city council. You know, they're a city planner. A couple a couple of my classmates work for my dad. Like, you know, <laughs> um, so it, it, I, I, think I, I think the aperture growing up in that was like very small, but it was... It was very insane too because like the shopping mall that we where we all hung out as as kids, um, the Westfield Santa Anita Shopping Center, it used to be the Santa Anita Detention Center, which was the largest Japanese internment camp like in the United States. Wow! And it housed like eighteen thousand like Japanese Americans at one point in time, and this is where we like threw tantrums because our parents wouldn't buy us Pokemon cards, you know, like, and so that was so there was always this like interesting like like cultural thing like underneath but it it, you know growing up you just weren't really like conscious of it so yeah i i I don't i don't know about working for nike because again it was also another thing that just seemed like so like fortune 500 company for me too like it just seemed like something that i don't think i'd really fit in there too um and so but then what made you take the job in the first place because i can imagine that's a type of job like global design director like that's a job job you have to decide to want and then sort of actively campaign for at a certain point no um they reached out they reached out to me mm-hmm. um i you know i think they were paying attention to the work i was doing at essence which was which i guess was was was, was the work i was doing at essence was more visible than i thought like to me it was just like a very niche small fashion e-commerce website that i was working with but like when you look at the numbers um, it is like a global company. It is a global company. And I think prior to that, I think we weren't as aware of a brand identity per se. Yeah. Like we knew it was like vaguely Canadian yeah, and it was clean. But then I think that the the one, two of you coming on and then Durga coming on yeah. for the editorial voice was like a moment where other people were like, oh, this is interesting. They, they hired some really good people. Like um, 
you know, they, I, I had like the privilege of working with some like insanely talented people in, you know, in Montreal, which is an international city at the end of the day, but still feels like a small town. And so I think all of us were just like really focused on our work. Um, and it, you know, I think the work and it was, what was amazing about it was that it was kind of highly visible and they, they did like feature like the people that worked at the company, they did put them in like very visible positions, you know? Um, like they did an interview with me when the design was done and not every company like necessarily does that. They don't let everyone kind of expose them, you know, and see right. what's under the hood. Um, so that kind of caught the attention of Nike, but I, 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 um, you know, one of my best friends was working there and they, they had him reach out to me and, um, you know, I was very dismissive at first. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, there's no way. And, um, you know, I, what they wanted me to do at Nike, I was like, I'm doing that at Essence already. I was like very kind of combative and dismissive, but, um, was that a fear response or was that immediately how you were feeling on a gut check level? On a gut check level, I definitely just wasn't interested in. I, um, but I think the more I thought about it, like it kind of did align with everything that I wanted to do. Like a lot of. Which was what? A lot of, you know, what I, what I really wanted to be near at was, was pop culture because I was this kid that grew up in the suburbs that didn't have access to a lot of um, just like kind of cool cultural things like in front of me. But what was cool about growing up in Southern California was just the presence of subcultures, you know, as suburban as you were, like you could get into punk, you could get into skateboarding, you could get into rap. And like, you know, people form these like tribes, like as early as like middle school or like even elementary school. And so I think from then I had just had kind of this innate understanding that like people do speak in style. People do speak, use style as like a language or people do use like little signifiers and how they dress and how they talk and what they listen to. And where their loyalties yeah, lie. Yeah, and where their loyalties lie to really communicate things. So that was just kind of interesting of an observation I've had as a kid. But, you know, I suddenly found myself in art school and then, you know, long story short, I find myself just like in like a, Fairly prestigious, like, like gra- you know, graduate program in design. I mean, arguably yeah. the most prestigious MFA program that you can like go through. Yeah, it was. Which is at Yale. Yeah, I I found myself at Yale. Um, you know, I was studying with like some of like the most like innovative like Dutch designers. Um, you know, in <laughs> in our generation, and you know, I was learning like critical theory. I was learning all these things that that were just like super interesting and conceptual. And it made me like look at the world in a very different way, but it just wasn't translating to what I knew back home and what my upbringing was. Uh, you know, just to better sum it up, like I wanted the homies back home to understand what I was doing. Like, Why is that? Um, Did you want like the credit for it? I don't necessarily want it, the credit for it, but like, I think like growing up, like I never, I never really intended to go into art. Um, I kind of fell into it by accident. How can you tell me the story yeah. around that? Um, I got arrested on Mother's Day for doing like graffiti. Um, and, you know, up until then, like, I had like kind of your stereotypical like Asian American upbringing. Like, I was a troublemaker, but more or less, like, I wanted to make my parents proud at the end of the day. And so, you know, the idea was that like I would 
study hard in school, do well on my SATs, take like college, you know, placement classes um, and get into a decent university and major in something like business administration um, or political science. Um, and, and that, and, and then getting arrested kind of just like opened up just a deeper conversation with my parents. Like, How old were you? I was uh, 17. Wow. So they, re- so you were hard and fast on a trajectory. Yeah. I was like, then I was like getting ready to basically apply to Stanford or USC, um, UCLA and yeah, go on that, like go in the finance world, basically that I was like pretty like committed to going into finance. Your body language when you talk about all of these sort of like capitulation career paths is so sad. <laughs> it, it's crazy because it's like, um, like, I don't know if you've been in like a car accident, like heaven forbid you don't, but like I've been in like a couple of car accidents, all my fault, but I've been in a couple <laughs> of car accidents where like I nearly like died. Mm-hmm. And it's like that close call and you get that weird survival guilt. Like what if, like there's a parallel universe where I died. Sure. Um, and, I'm tensing up right now because there's a parallel universe where, yeah, I'm selling life insurance or I'm a certified financial planner. And, you know, it's a very vivid picture of me. And he's like sitting right in front of me right now. So I have a question. So going back to just Nike, I really just want because it's still so fresh. Like I remember hanging out with you and I gave you Palo Santo for like your new apartment where I was like, wow, this is like a seismic change for you. And you still had kind of like that thousand mile sort of, it's the thousand yard stare and you you seemed kind of shaken up. But I want to know more about, because Nike ostensibly being in line with what your interests are, like signaling fealty and like pop culture and culture in general, how did you decide that you were going to leave? Because it is a huge job and it's sexy. And I'm sure all your friends back home get what that is. I think I have to just be honest with myself, like why I took the job and it was the money. Um, mm. It was, but what I tried to justify it as was that like, all, you know, I had did my rounds like, you know, in like the Yale MFA circles. I was in like, you know, I was take, I was like learning conceptual theory. I was like learning like critical practices. I was learning all these things and it felt like very far removed. And, and I always wanted to try to marry that with, with like, just mainstream like pop culture and make that kind of more legible and understandable in a certain way. It's why I, I love like, I love like magazines like Fader in the college because it was like really smart writing, but it wasn't like academic writing. And I, in grad school, I was just getting really annoyed by like academic writing equating to academic thinking. And, you know, I, I, I love like just studying like pop culture in a very critical way. And so I graduated, you know, in, instead of trying to go into the like, whole institutional like museum design route i tried to say like i want to work with rappers i want to work with you know electronic musicians i want to work in that and so nike what was interesting to nike was that um it kind of was like the the peak of it it's the it's it's the biggest brand in the world in a lot of in in a lot of ways besides i guess besides the catholic church you know it's the largest brand in the world and um it's the most recognizable logo and maybe there's a way to inject like subversive ideas onto such a wide platform. You know, that was that was the spiel in my head and that but literally like they you know I I went through the interview process and it was like a whole day they flew me up to Portland. Um you know, 
And I didn't want, I didn't agree to do an interview at first too. They, they noticed like, I think through Instagram that I was like in LA with my parents mm. and they like, you know, asked me to come up for a day. And I, you know, I was kind of annoyed that I was taking time away from my family to go to this. And so, you know, I remember myself just like, I don't think I was rude, but I, I was just like very like transparent. Like, you know, they asked me like, how close are you with the brand? And I'd say, I like the brand, but I'm not a fanboy. And I don't want to be in a situation where I'm asked to be a fanboy. Like I, I, I made those terms pretty clear. And then when it kind of finally came to like, um, like asking me like what my salary expectations were, um, I gave, and this is like an industry term, like fuck off number. Mm -hmm. You know, I gave a number that I was like, okay, like I'm just going to name a high number. And so the recruiter was like, that's a little high. Can you go a little lower? And I was like, what, what? Right. You're like, you're negotiating off of that number. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us what number you gave them at first? Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, you know, I was just like, I I want like $250,000 a year. Okay. You know, and, um, you know, they were like, they were like, that's high. Can you go a little bit lower? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Like, what the fuck? And, you know, they're like, oh, but also like, we're going to give you a shit ton of stock options and a huge bonus too. Mm -hmm. And so when you added that up, that was significantly higher than that fuck off number that I threw. And then suddenly I was like, you know, I, I was, I was in an essence, like I was hiding away in an essence meeting room when that like happened. And, um, you know, it was a very, it was during a very like particular, but trying time at essence. Like it was getting like really stressful. There was a lot of change in like leadership and management and morale was like really low. And also it was, um, it was 28 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That'll do it. Yeah. And so I was looking outside in that blizzard and, um, you know, I, I, I walk out just like, yeah, sure. Um, you know, let, let me think about it, you know? And then I, you know, I bump into a close friend, um, that I work with and like, like we did, I did like the whisper yelling where yeah. I was like, I guess God. And he was like, how much did you ask? And I was like, hey, match it. He was like, what? And then we were both were like whispering. And he's like, you have to do it. And I was like, oh my God. You know? And um, yeah, it was just, I think, I think, you know, like there's like moments where your life kind of just changes. Yeah. Like, you know, there's just like, there's like a three second time where you're just like, yeah, my life kind of just, just changed. Um, I, I think that, that feeling was one of it too. And so. In retrospect, yeah. do you off, off, do you also have that hindsight bias of like being like, wow, even going into this, there's like so much hesitation on my part on an yeah. intuitive level and yeah. so much resentment. Yeah, I my my listen to your body, like yeah, life man. lesson. Listen to your body. My body is extremely sensitive. Like I get butterflies in my stomach, and they've never proved me wrong. And um, it like. You know, I want to make sure to say that, like, I'm really thankful for the experience. Um, you learned like, a lot, right? I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, I grew a lot. But, man, it was fucking hard. It was, like... What was hard about it? it, it like, what was... It was just, like, total. Like, it mm. like, it just... It asked for... It asked for, like, your, your soul. Like, it asked for, like, 100% of you. You know, it... it and... It it wasn't like, oh, you know, I was contractually obligated to not take on side projects. I wasn't. But it, like, mentally took off. Like, it mentally asked you to, like, fall in love with the brand and just be completely loyal to it. Like, I, 
like, I still can't wear another shoe. Like, I've been gone for two months and, like, I still can't wear another shoe brand. And I'm upset at myself for not being able to wear another, like, shoe brand right now. And Like, contractually, you're not allowed no, to? No, no. Like, I can't get myself to. <sighs> like, like, even if you refuse to drink the Kool-Aid, it's injected into your veins, mm. you know? Um, That's so interesting. Like, it's, like, a weird, like, post-traumatic, like, response. But, like... I was like, oh, is today the day where I'm going to buy a pair? Not like a, like, I like to give myself a little bit of distance. Like I treat like jobs, like relationships, like, oh, after a breakup, like, you know, like maybe don't hit up people who that work there. Maybe like keep mm, your distance, sure. maybe like patronize another brand. Like, you know, when I quit Essence, I was buying off of Farfetch for a while, <laughs> you know? Um, You're like, I like Toto Kayo. <laughs> yeah. Like it was just it, like give myself a healthy distance and like really try to understand it. But I, I can't do it. Like, for whatever reason. And it's so stupid Is and irrational. Is it Stockholm Syndrome? Do you still just have some, like... Do you have guilt or something? Do you still, like, feel guilty I have. I, I have a weird survival guilt because I also left during... I also left during, like, a big company shakeup. Sure. And, like, I know, like... Like, without giving away too much, like, I've... The people that I've talked to, like, that are still there, there's a lot of pain. And there's a lot of just instability right now. Um, so are you actually yeah. just keeping Nike swooshes on your feet as like an homage to the people you left behind? I think that, I mean, that was definitely the most heartbreaking part about leaving is that there were definitely people that like, wow, like the amount of talent and like the way they see the world. It's so, you know, like I've, I learned so much being surrounded by like, by like specific people. And, um, you Man, know, this and company I feel, did a number on you, huh? It, yeah, it's, it's really weird because I don't, like, I don't want to come off as like, oh, I fucking hated this place, et cetera. Like I, I left when I was very comfortable. Like I could have stayed longer, you know, in a lot of ways. Is but, there any part of you right now speaking to what you're saying about like jobs and relationships? Are you are you still like in grief about like the death of what you thought this idea of a job would pan out as? Um, I'm in grief of what kind of designer I thought would pan out because. Ooh, what's the distinction? What What's going on there? Um, Nike seemed like the last step to the goal to a type of designer that I wanted to be, which was like. And, you know. Maybe I maybe this sounds like douchey. Maybe this sounds like bad. But like I'm oddly like proud. For example, that like on Twitter, like I'm followed by like rappers, like like Dutch architectural theorists and Silicon Valley VCs all at once. Like I I love that people are able to maybe relate to me in like one piece at a time. And I always like wish that. You know, if there's anything I could become, it's like a bridge towards like just different subcultures, different types of people, different like subject matters, different. And like Nike was just like, okay, this is my chance to try to bridge like really like forward thinking, like challenging, confrontational, like create creative work with a wide audience and to try to, you know, like I, I found joy in like that compromise. Like, I don't find joy in making, like, cool work for cool people. Like, that doesn't make me happy. Like, I I want to introduce, like, cool things to normies, I guess. Like So you, you know, like sort of the democracy of that? I like the democracy of that, and I, and I, and I or, or so I thought. And then I get to Nike, and, I, and I'm like, I'm not happy. And I thought this is what I wanted to do, but this is all, like, 
But is that a product of like the efficacy with which you could do that much disruption there? Was it more an issue that you got there and you're like, wow, I thought democratizing this and like making this pop culture aspect of this really accessible, the fact that you you weren't able to do that as much as you thought. Is that what you're actually mourning here or confronting rather? I'm not sure, you know, because yeah. um, part of me is also like, if I can't do it here, where can I really genuinely do it? And um, and maybe that's my own myop- myopic kind of thinking. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's myopia. I think that's just the question. Yeah. That's like, just like that will govern the rest of the curiosity for the rest of your life. Like, yeah. And that's beautiful. I think I left Nike, like I started Nike thinking like I had all the answers and I had a very specific like purpose for my profession or being in my profession. I had a very specific like reason for doing the work I did. And I walked out like, I don't know what kind of work I want to do anymore. That's awesome data. You got a really good lesson. Yeah. I mean, that's like a classic Saturn Returns type situation where it's like, oh yeah, this is all about what you don't know. And I think that that, that, is a gift. And yeah. I know that that's like some real douchey shit to say, but um, I do want to know, cause I, is there any advice that you would give to anyone in the position right now where they're coming to that same realization that, and no, like realizing that they need to quit? Like, do you have advice for anyone who needs to quit? Um, I'm probably just going to paraphrase what, you know, our good friend, Phil Chang like friend of the pod all, yeah, yeah friend of the pod has always said um because him him and and our, our another one of our good friends Hassan Rahim the two of them were the ones that really helped me the most because originally my plan was to stay at Nike for another year and then disappear in Taipei for three years oh I heard about this plan yeah. too yeah um and they kind of talked me out of it and said like you know you don't have to be that extreme you could just get out of a bad situation now instead of like <laughs> enduring another year and going nuclear you know um, and basically, you know, what, what were my fears for leaving that I was leaving stability? Um, but I was also leaving, I was also leaving like a conclusion to a story. Like my parents were very devastated that I wanted to go into art and the fact that they found out through getting arrested for graffiti, the whole thing was just very mournful for them. And they went like, kind of like full circle and they've, accept they've eventually accepted who I was um and part of it was that like okay like yeah I'm an artist but I like how else am I going to get into an Ivy League university you know like and you know how important that is for East Asian parents sure you know and like then it was like how else am I going to work at a fortune 500 company you know and so it was it, it checked off like very specific boxes like Asian parents and I, I just don't think people understand that because like I get a lot of comments from my wife friends like oh just live your life and don't care what your parents say and it's and, you know it's like fuck you like yeah like, you wouldn't understand I mean you and, can't really take advice from someone yeah. who's like from the shut up mom fuck you mom yeah camp. so like you know there's a whole kind of like crossing an ocean kind of narrative that's attached to it like why did you know why did your parents come you know to this country and stuff so there was like that like okay the Nike thing was like for like my Asian parents like Okay, he went on his own path, but he's fine now. We don't and have to worry about him. he's safe now, yeah. He's safe now. And, like, when I realized I wanted to quit, I wrote, like, my mom an entire letter in Chinese. Um, and I usually talk to her in English, but I wrote it to her in Chinese. I had it, like, translated. Just saying, like, hey, like, I know you're going to worry about me. And, like, this is really heartbreaking that you're going to worry about me again. But, like, I promise you, like, 
I'm going to be financially independent. I'm going to figure this out, but this is what I need to do. And then she responded basically, oh, well, it's okay. I know how you are. Uh, and so, <laughs> um, That's so beautiful. Like it, she was just like, yeah, you're, she's like, you're just like your dad. It's okay. Oh my gosh. That's, that's, oh, like, that like, that yeah. makes my heart squish. That's, that's such a, it's such a beautiful thing because it is a huge part, I think, yeah. of actualization and being the child of immigrants where you feel the burden of that kind of love for so yeah. long. And she just unburdened you. Yeah. She was just like, oh yeah, I know you always figure it out. So when you're and going so. to art center, you know, for your bachelor's, which is again, a very, very sexy, hallowed, expensive place. Yeah. And then you go to Yale for your MFA, all the things. Like, how did you pay for all that? Um, Yale was good. Yale paid for everything. Um, so, is that why you were kind of famously known while you were at Yale of like sharing curriculums and throwing everything in your Dropbox and like yeah. being really open source? Yeah, because like, I got it for free essentially, and I wanted other people to get it for free. Talk, um, talk me through that. Like, what what made you decide? And did you get any? Tr in any trouble for that? Like that kind, no. of kind of made you this like. I didn't get any trouble for that, but um, you know, I, I mean, it's almost as if it never happened because to this day, like, it's still used as like a straw man when I make something. They're like, "Well, like you went to a, a fucking privileged school and you're a really privileged kid." You know, whenever I like try to talk about something, so you know, it's like, yeah, it's true, and I've. I don't know what else I could do to try to undo <laughs> like that or like so unprivileged was, was myself that, like, by like almost, giving away my class materials. Was that know? like a self Robin Hooding where you like making penance or something? Um, maybe there was that, but it's also just like, hey, this is really cool stuff and everyone needs to know this. And school is school in America is like theft and scam. Yeah. And so I it, it really was like I want to do the right thing. Like <clears throat> because I realized that like, you know, especially it was after also just like getting to know people like Hassan who were didn't go to school and were just self-taught. I was just like, if, you know, if a couple of PDFs is what makes me feel like artistically superior to somebody else, then fuck it. Like everyone had those PDFs, you know? Yeah. Um, and graphic designers are just so, graphic designers hold on to digital files like it's their life. Like a lot of graphic design is like using a font that no one else knows and like being cool about it, right? And so, a lot of graphic design is like knowing a technique that isn't like popular and it's like being first to something and like, like fuck all of that. Right. Like, you know, if you're, if you, if, if your whole power is, 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 is in a font file, then like, then you're not a powerful, you're not a good designer, you know? So it, to me, it was just like a very like, okay, like ideas stay stale in my head if they just stay in my head. If I give it away, it forces me to come up with better ideas. So you're just like very open source, just like, yeah. Yeah. I think I think now maybe I'm a little bit more protected, I guess. Like I guess I'm washed, you know? Like <laughs> you're like, like scarcity mentality has yeah, finally hit. Like me. I'm washed and I'm like threatened by the new generation of kids now. Are like, you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, okay, that's really funny because like obviously your entire life's work is about conveyance of information and conference of ideas. You're very open source. You are like, you know, extremely conceptual. And like recently there was a thing, you know, on social media where like you were remarking on someone's sort of like, let's say, let's call it an homage or the yeah. fact that they kind of created a logo out of some lettering that you had done, but like turned it upside down or something. And you just pointed it out when people are up in arms at you about that. And like, 
not calling you a bully, but sort of calling you out for for like, you know, calling that out. Like, what is that thinking? Like, is that like, what does that actually speak to in terms of like the industry? Because I don't this is not my world. And were you exasperated? Yeah. Like, what's the whole thing? It was just, I guess, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, I, I think, like, in me, there's me and a couple other designers that are just kind of in this awkward place where we're highly visible and thus, like, have a lot of cultural relevance in our field. But we're also, like, not, we're not, like, multimillionaire agency owners. So a lot of people, I think, on the internet equate visibility to, like, class basically or like just like power and power money influence and, yeah. and mm -hmm. money and and whatnot or i think in general people maybe equate like a high salary with wealth you know and that's maybe not necessarily true because of student loans and etc and all all those other things um and yeah it, it was just one of those things where um like you know, to answer your previous question, like Yale was pretty good. It's, you know, the endowment was great. And it's the only reason I went to grad school is that one, they gave me a full scholarship for both years. The second year, they also paid for my rent, you know. Um, and so most of my student loans were all on, well, all of my student loans were from Art Center, which right. was the most exorbitant country, you know, um, the most expensive, it's the most expensive, Art Center is the most expensive school in the country. Period. I think it's, yeah, it's like $24,000 a semester right now. Yeah, and there's three semesters a year. That's what people don't understand. Oh, shit. So it's like $60,000 a year. Oh, shit. Like it's people don't understand that it's a year-round school. Oh, man. Yeah. People don't understand how expensive Art Center is. Nope. And another thing is that they don't have housing. So you have to get an apartment when you're 18 In Pasadena? Old. In Pasadena. That, that rent. Yeah. There are currently 18 homeless students like at Art Center last time I checked. Like it's like it's a problem, you know. Um, wow. But honestly, having taught at other schools, it's still like the best undergraduate program ever. And that's like where, where, where it's like heartbreaking because actually like the money goes like the teachers are paid very handsomely compared to other schools. And well, that school is incredible. Like I, yeah. I have friends who've come out of there who are just like just ready for a career in ways that are just like not I mean, yeah. apparently it's quantifiable, but like it's incredible. And to answer a bunch of, you know, to answer a bunch of your questions, maybe all at once too, mm -hmm. it's like, I get asked a lot, like one, is it worth going to these like top tier schools? And it's like, I'm the worst person to ask because like, I went to Art Center, I went to Yale. I also did a stint at Central St. Martin's in London. So like, I went to like- All of the things. <laughs> I went to like all of the schools. So like, like if I'm just like, school's not worth the money, like- you know, it comes from a very weird place. Well, what is the thing that you get from school that you couldn't have gotten somewhere else? It, not not as far as curriculum or PDF, but just the experientially or immersively or like who you're around and or what you learn there. You get you get two things. You get time and you get conversations. The best thing about Yale is that it forces you to have two years to think about this full time instead of having another job instead of like, can I do the thing? Could I like have could I teach myself graphic design like when I'm working you know in another field yeah but eight hours a day is dedicated to not thinking about it and like that's one thing that school gets you and that's literally a big thing that you're paying for and two is the conversations you have you know self-directed learning is one thing but it's another thing to be with like 20 of your friends who are all asking the same questions and you're all hanging out together and you're all like figuring it out like the most of their education takes place outside of the classroom that's what people don't understand is that worth it financially i don't know because you know, if 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 tuition was what people paid in Europe, like five thousand euros a year, yeah, of course it's worth it. Is it worth like sixty thousand dollars a year? I don't think so. I don't think I could rationally like tell people that it's worth it. At the same time, 
I probably have benefited in, from my education in ways that I still don't understand, you know? Well, I mean, and that's the sort of thing. It's like we can sit here and be like, higher education is a scam in this country, et cetera, et cetera. Name, name brand schools, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, is that you graduate with a graduating class who do get incredibly storied positions, not just by dint of pedigree, but because they're exceptional. And yeah. those people are like people you know when you hit your industry. And, and that was the thing, you know, Art Center was also just a very commercial school. Like we had 60 job, like we had 60 job interviews, like each student had 60 job interviews by the time they graduated. Like that school was like geared towards like getting you a job, which was the opposite of Yale. Um, so I guess like, I, you know, I got like op two different like ideologically opposed schools and and like I found like some something in the middle that works. But it's like, yeah, everyone that I went to school with is doing fine, like absolutely fine. I'm sure. And you've also taught as an adjunct professor at yeah. Parsons and, and SVA. And yeah. SVA. Um, how, how was that? And how did that differ from your own matriculation? And if you can't afford to do either of those things, like mm -hmm. what should you do instead? I think like I'm envious of students now and I'm like, also just like not envious of them at the same time. Like, <laughs> being young sucks for yeah, one. Yeah. I think being young sucks for one. I think also just going to school in New York City fucking sucks. Like there's just so much cool shit to do. Like why would you want to do homework? Like there's nothing to do in New Haven and Pasadena. So we just all like, you know, like another thing, like, like there's just so many like good students like outside of New York City. Like Providence, Rhode Island has RISD, you know, like. Um, you know, like Yale has New Haven, like it, it all happens to be schools that are located outside of a major city hub. And I'm not saying that like bad students come out of New York. Like it's still like some of the best students I've seen are from New York city, but it like, man, if I were 18 years old, like the distraction, the distractions, like why would like, I, I graduated before Tinder, like, I, you know, I graduated <laughs> from Yale like three months before Tinder came out and I'm like, holy shit, I'm so lucky. Like, just, like there was no tinder like i you know tumblr wasn't really used a lot but i think to that point now it's that like you know like i've i've had students that had a tumblr account since they were eight years old and that is just something that i can't really wrap my head around that they were exposed to so much visual culture at such a young age but it's so paralyzing for them because well, they think everything's been done already exposure and also judgment yeah. the thing is it's like people are then weighing in on your eight-year-old findings and your eight-year-old forays and like you've had the scrutiny since yeah. you were eight too um but at the same time like they're they have they have some of the best most like cultivated diverse taste levels of like of like more than my generation but they're not resourceful about it like well we, it's all surface not depth and it's I, all fed to them through a recommendation algorithm so they don't know how to dig for things they're not diggers, they're scrapers. Yeah. And that has its own function. Yeah. And I really do think that we'll see that come to fruition in its own specific way. But like, no, I have definitely the same concerns. So I just want to sort of check in with you about what your life is like right now. Like, how are you organizing your day at the moment? Um, really one day at a time. Like, I think like, and, and I'm sorry, I keep like, jumping to other questions but without like fully answering like a no question. it's but, totally fine um, it can be whatever you want like you you asked me earlier like you know what was i like what was i scared about leaving you know like mm -hmm. the stability is kind of what saved my life like you know before essence before nike i was i had i was a freelance designer in new york and the lack of structure like 
the lack of structure like really made my personal life fall apart in a lot of ways. Like I, you know, I, 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 I worked really hard in school and then at Yale, I was in a, and I was in a long-term, like long distance like relationship. And so, you know, I didn't really have like a party phase. And so I pretty much discovered alcohol after grad school. And wow. Like, that's diabolical potentially. Yeah, where the stakes are much higher, where I have expectations, where, you know. Well, right. And it's also that whole thing of like when straight edge kids like yeah. fall off the X, then it's like straight to heroin. Yeah. It's never like, it's so extreme. So, uh, you know, I was 24 when I graduated from Yale and I hit New York City. And like before I graduated from school, I was like, like people were talking about me. Um you were interviewed when you were still in school yeah. as like the conceptual like vanguard of like, you know, the whole thing. And it's all because of Eddie Huang. Like I'll get to that later, but like like that's a whole other thing too because like yeah, I so I, you know, I I'm like I'm visible before I leave school and I get to New York and I have I I get a full-time job. Um and now I suddenly have expendable income and for whatever reason, I forgot about student loans because one, I didn't really have to think about it in grad school. So I didn't really think about it for two years. And two, they, you know, Sally Mae has that like six months grace period before they hit you up. So I was just like, oh, my rent's covered. I could spend the rest on whatever I want, I guess. And so I just went out every night and I was just, you know, I just stayed out till like also New York, New like York, bars close at four. So, but you can still stay out till like six. Yeah. So, you know, I was doing that and, you know, the, th the funny thing about like alcoholism or like functional alcoholism is that, you know, people think it's like you're Doug Stamper on like House of Cards. Like people think that you're like, you know, you have to be like drinking a bottle, like during the day to be considered having a problem. You know, I was like very functional and like, you know, I never drank at work. I never did anything like that. But I realized I was basing decisions off of alcohol where like, hey, I'll cancel this meeting tomorrow because I'm out with my friends right now. And it's like, where do you draw that line? Like it still can... It's still dictating my life in a certain way, but in New York, that's much more insidious and passable, and everyone kind of does that. Right, know? and it's sort of seductive because it's cloaked in this whole thing of like, that's how I'm going to build, that's yeah. how I'm going to network, like I'm doing, I'm working away from work by doing this and socializing. Yeah, and like in my head, like I had become a good graphic designer, and it's everything that I wanted to be. Like at one point, I wanted to be a really great graphic designer, and I guess I got it at a young age, and. Um, it left me with this big gaping like void in my heart. Oh God. Did you feel like you'd peak too early? Yeah, I, I did. Like I like. Well, you got that like big recognition from like the New York art directors. Yeah. It was, it's just the like. The Young Gun Award yeah, or something. I got, you know, like. Yeah. And I was like one of the youngest to ever do. I was the youngest to the do youngest, it for a, lot, yeah. for a while. You know? And so what um, even is the art? Designers Club of New York is that what it's the Art Directors Club of New yeah. York, and it's just like an industry organization. But they had this thing. I, I think it's less relevant now, but back then in 2010, it was like they assembled like I think 50 of like in their minds like the best creatives under the age of 30, and I and I got it when I was 21. So this is like getting Forbes is 30 under 30, but for the art world. Yeah, it's 30 under 30 for the art world, and I got it when I was 21, and I didn't Jesus. really know what to do like after that because I was like, it would be cool to get that when, when I'm 29. Right. And so, um, and so I get to New York, you know, I have an expendable income. Like, I'm suddenly, like, in a big city for the first time. I would go to parties and someone's like, hey, you're Eric. I, I like your work. Like, I was, like, like more people knew me than I knew them. And that was just such a weird feeling. And um, it left a big gaping hole in my heart. And, like, I wanted to be a freelancer because I wanted to wake up at 12 p.m. And I wanted to wake up at 12 p.m. because I want... 
to be out till oh, like five. Yeah. yeah. Now so, I want to be a freelancer because I want to make good work. And so it's very different now. Well, what are the tools that you have now that you didn't have then? Um, runway, I guess. Like save, I'm, I saved up money and now like I could float. Uh, sobriety is a, is a great tool. Um, I, I don't drink anymore. Um, I don't either. Yeah. And um, I guess like, maturity because i think like i was also just battling with a lot of demons like i didn't have like 24 was around the time where i realized like how sh shitty aspects of my childhood were that you know 24 was i had just gone through like a debilitating like breakup you know like i think the reason i really started drinking was that like i didn't want to go to bed sober because i didn't want to think about the like, I didn't want to think about that person that dumped me, you know? And so those were all just, like, very, like, simple decisions. Well, like, well, if I go to bed, like, if I go to bed, like, buzzed, like, like I'm not going to have those weird butterflies in my stomach. Right. And if you don't go to bed at all, then you, you have fewer hours to think about that person yeah. while you're alone. And it's funny because I just bumped into, the, like, I just saw that person at a bar. And it was, like, the first time I'd seen her in, like, five years. And, like, I'm, by no means am I blaming, like, the last five years of my life on, like, on this or like the last like seven years of my life on this person, but it was just like more like, oh, like my relationship with this person was like this catalyst for a bunch of life decisions that like kind of made me like take a, a decade long detour, you know? Um, because now my motivations are much more closer in line to what they were when I was 22. But like it took years to get back to that point. But I went into her and it was like, you know, I think we locked eyes and like, it, it was okay, it was fine. like. I'm like, yeah, this is, the, I don't think this person truly knows like how much of an effect they've had on my life, but it's okay because that part of my life is over. And, and it's not a moral issue. And yeah. ultimately what other people think of you is none of your business. Yeah. yeah. So it was just like, oh, okay, fine. So as far as like how you're organizing, organizing your day now in sobriety and not letting all these other things dictate you and without the desperation of needing to take the next job, yeah. like how are you, what's your day look like? Um, it's, 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 it's one day at a time now. I mm -hmm. think it's going to be a lot more different in January because I think for me, a big problem I had in the past was that I would say yes to everything because I think like, so I was mostly raised by my maternal grandmother and like, she went through a lot, like, you know, in Taiwan, like the Japanese occupation. Listen, you're poverty. talking to a Korean person. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> There's a huge kind of scarcity mindset that she kind of just like imprinted on me. At a, you know, like you never know when like the harvest is going to come basically. Yeah, and so intergenerational trauma, especially when you are dealing with that generation too. It's like, it's like nature and nurture. Yeah. You're just getting it from everywhere. You hoard the shit out of everything. You, yeah, hoard, man. you hoard food, you hoard jobs, you hoard, you know. So I always was like, well, if I'm independent, I don't know when the next job is going to come. So I'm going to say yes to everything. And I end up overexerting myself. And that was also, you know, that plus... The drinking plus being 24 years old in New York City with distractions, you know, like I, I saw a lot of success in my career during those years, you know, but it like I also like burned a lot of bridges at the same time. And, yeah. you know, I don't think that's really apparent on Instagram and Twitter all the time. It's all like very curated. So, you know, like those were some of the years where some of the best I was doing some of the best work I was doing. But in my head, my personal life was just falling apart. But to, I mean, not to digress like too far, I think like my day right now is that like, I just moved to New York. I'm still setting up my apartment. I'm still like getting, like saying hi to people. A lot of people don't re actually realize I'm, I haven't really 
officially announced that I've moved back to New York. That's the move. Um, That's like, you know, yeah. I've just been quietly kind of just like telling people I'm like back in New York. Well, you kind of get a chance to do a do-over. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm going to let people in as I feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. It basically like, I'm yeah, I'm doing the opposite of what I did like last time, which was like come move into a city with a big splash and like ready to like. I've arrived. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like quote unquote ready to kill it. Like yeah. and then, oh shit, I didn't kill it. Like, hey, um, skulking backwards. Yeah. So I think what I do now is that like a lot of it's just like logistics. Like, okay, how do I get my, how do I get a New York license again? How do I, you know, mm. how do I. How do I buy a computer desk? How do I do this? How do I write this email? Say hi. And so a lot of it's like, you know, it's it's funny living down the street from Phil too, because it just feels like a sitcom. Because like, I know a lot of my day is like, I I debated a lot about this because again, I was saying that like having a nine to five is kind of what saved my life in a lot of ways, like forcing that structure and forcing responsibility. So I wanted to carry that over at first. So I was like, I need to wake up at 6 a.m. I need to start working at nine. I need to clock out at five. I need to just have the structure because when I was a freelancer, when I didn't have structure, it fell apart. But what's the point of doing your own thing if you're just gonna subject yourself to that kind of misery, like those like very capitalistic like work things, right? Also, you have to be so kind and like gentle to your artist so yeah. that your artist can begin working. Like, yeah. I wish if we just sat there, it would come, but that's never no. the case. No, and I'm, I've just admitted to myself, like, yo, I'm, I'm a night person. My best ideas still come at 2 a.m. Like, I just can't fight it. So I, I try to do this middle ground where it's like, like before, like when I first lived in New York, I would wake up at 2 p.m. Like, no, like... <laughs> Like I wake up at two p.m. and go to bed at six a.m. Like that's like I, I, I like fuck that like like that I need to be an adult somehow. So I wake up around like nine or ten. Um, do you set an alarm anymore? Um, I do. I, I set an alarm and I have what's called a, a slow morning. And I learned this from one of my best friends, Roy Tatum. Um, basically, for the first couple of hours in the morning, you don't you don't look at a screen. So. I have an like I have an old like alarm clock, and um, so you get all the errands that you want to do. Like you do your reading, you like take what are a you, walk. What are you reading? Um, I'm just about to start this book called. And I can't think of the author's name for some reason, but my friend Jasmine recommended this to me. Uh, the mushroom at the end of the world. Okay. And uh, so that's the vibe you're at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have you have you heard have you? No, but book? it just sounds like such a compelling and enigmatic so, read. It's it's good. It's a it's a. I think I'm I'm looking forward to it being like a post Nike cleanser because it's about mushrooms that could only grow in human disturbed forests, and they're some of the most valued mushrooms in the world. And it talks about the commodity chain and how those mushrooms are harvested as an allegory to the question: Can there be life in capitalist ruins? And so. Wow, um, the sort of recursive nature that takes into account like end times yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm about to dive deep into that book, and so that was, um, that was good. I think what I was like currently reading now was um, Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. Mm. Um, so that was a good thing because um, her essay, "The Eye and Internet." was pretty much like the last couple of years of my life. Like it also kind of lets you off the hook for not wanting a certain type of life anymore. Yeah. yeah. I it was like when when I finished reading it, like I closed my eyes like for like a good thirty seconds and I was just like, I'm free now. Like <laughs> like I, I like I, I, I finished reading the Iron Internet. I closed my eyes 
and I saw myself in front of me, like 24 years old, and I like put my hand on his shoulder, and I was like, "You don't have to do this." And, oh, uh, I love that. Ugh, compassion and, like, and self forgiveness yeah. is so hard to get to. Um, it like so much of my life, so much of my 20s was dictated by Twitter and Instagram, as as much as I hate to admit it, and it was like feeding into the likes and stuff. Like, I you know I became well known. I became well known in the industry or against like a couple of designers um, for speaking out on issues as like an under, like an Asian American, you know, talking about like race and talking about like inequality and things like that. And I'm glad I did. And, you know, people said that they were encouraged because it, it made them think about things and it was an important voice, but it was also like, I was also, again, a 24 year old with a big hole in my heart with like trying to process trauma someone that's felt more or less worthless and unloved for most of his life and suddenly getting validations on social media and through something that was for the moral good, worst cocktail ever. Yeah. Like it, inject that shit in my veins. It was just like, it was just such a drug, like, you know, social, like social justice. It was just such a fucking drug. And like, it, it was, you know, you could, and it could carry on for so long because, like, yeah, you're doing the right thing, right? Like, you're, you're in a you're service talking mind about, state. It has to be done. It might as well be you. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, but I would be lying if I said it didn't give me a validation and a love and an affection that I crave for. And, it, and, and that it didn't, like, and it ultimately, like, burned me out in the end, you know? As it always does. Yeah. Like, it's fucking pure physics. Yeah. So... I, you know, I'm, I've been just reading that as like a post Nike cleanser and I had these things called like, you know, to jump back to like what's, what my day looks like. I have these things called slow mornings where I do my walking around the block. Like I do all this stuff and like, I look at, I look at a screen at around 2 PM and, um, by then I'm in a good mood. Like I just take a slow morning. Like I take my time. I'm not in a rush and like, well, it gives you a chance to be in your body. Yeah. And around then, I usually message Phil, and it's like, "Have you eaten lunch? <laughs> Do you want to you go know? to the mall? <laughs> you want to go to the mall and like get some food?" And like, it, then it feels like like Friends or Seinfeld again. But I don't know because I actually never watched those two shows. I'm just, I'm Good just like, co I'm cosplaying right now. <laughs> um, I'm cosplaying being an American right now. Well, speaking of that, you know, like I've talked on this podcast to people like us, how there's almost like a second coming of age where it's like you come into your own as an artist. And then you come into your own as an artist of color. And given the fact that you grew up predominantly around Asians, I was wondering if that experience was something that you had. Or... Oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, so, um, you know, Buddhism was founded uh, by this Indian prince, uh, Siddhartha Gautama. And um, he was raised by a father who wanted um, Siddhartha to not know any suffering in the world. So he raised them in just pure paradise. And one day Siddhartha took a journey out of the palace walls and he saw the sick and the dying and it really shook him to his core. My point is that like I grew up where I, as a person of color, but I was in the majority. I think there was, there were race issues, but we like my school was majority Asian. And so there wasn't like a power dynamic. It was just like, you know, there's one time like this kid Patrick like called my friend Charles a chink, and like and Patrick died. <laughs> and Patrick like got his ass kicked. Like we were we were all so happy he said that word. We were looking to be oppressed so bad. We we're like, oh hell yeah, 
Like, we're going to fuck this kid up. Like, you know. Because you guys were the jocks. You guys yeah. were the burnouts. You guys were the punks. You guys were the everything. Yeah, we were yeah. just like, hell yeah. Like, our prom king and prom queen were both Asian. Like, it was just like, so it was just this weird, unique slice of, like, American life where, yeah, like, we were, you know, like, we were the majority. And, like, like I didn't really understand, like, I understood race issues. Like, it was still segregated school, like. The Asians hung out with the Asians, right? But also, like, the Chinese kids hung out with the Chinese kids. The Koreans hung out with the Koreans. The Japanese kids hung out with the Japanese kids. Um, what abundance. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, and those are, like, there was a big gang element, too, because it was, like, sure. L.A., you know, like, an L.A. public school. So it was, like, you know, Cantonese gangs, Korean gangs, like, et cetera. But it's, like, you kind of just, like, fill in the crevices where there's a void, right? And so... I get to art school and I'm interacting with basically a bunch of white people for pretty much the first time, like the most white people I've interacted with ever. And now they're making the same jokes that I've heard in school, but why does it hurt now? Oh shit, right. Like, why does this hurt more? Like, why Why does this, like, the, you know, like it felt very different from like a Mexican classmate in high school, like making like an Asian joke, like, and everyone just like laughing it off. Like, suddenly, like, the background faded to black. Everything's in slow motion. And, like... Suddenly, the, you're, like, in an 80s movie. The conversation's like, moved on, and it's still in my head. And yeah. that's, like, literally the first time as an adult, like, I felt that. And I felt, like, robbed of something. And I didn't have words to articulate that until, like, grad school, when I, like, really thought about race. Like, oddly, through Eddie Wong's Twitter account. What is your relationship with Eddie, also a friend of the pod? I've never met him in person, but he's, like, if I had to pick one person, like, there's a lot of people that really changed my life. Like, if there's, like, one person that changed my adult life the most, it was Eddie Wong. And just, did you read the New York Magazine article? Was it just his existence? Was it just, like, what he embodied? It was really weird because, um, so, like, after my first year of grad school, you know, like, I thought I wanted to go to Yale so bad. I wanted to study, like, the Dutch design methodology. And Yale's, like, like Yale's faculty was mostly Dutch. And I wanted to learn a very specific European type of graphic design. And um, it was just not clicking. Like, I was just, like, I had a really bad first year, end of the year, first year review. And it was just, like, I think the message was clear. I was, like, I was trying to be someone that I wasn't. Um and that was another thing where maybe it, there was a racial element to it too, where I was like closed off from like a certain world or a certain space. And so um, I wanted to study under these people. I, I wanted to study with these people and like a lot of them, like, you know, they were nice, but I think they were just like, I, I, like, I don't really think they thought much of me, you know? And um, so I don't get any internships. Um, that year and now we're going on summer break and I'm in New York and I'm just like like I don't want to go back to LA I'm just in New York for the first time and like um, you know I'm crashing with a friend from undergrad and I don't have anything to do all summer so I just have a lot of time to myself and it was the first summer vacation I've ever had in my life because um Growing up, summer vacations were for SAT classes, were oh, for summer so school, so many extracurriculars. So it was the first time I had just like three months to myself without a job, and uh, and it, you know, after the first week of staying indoors, I was like, I got to get out, right? And so, 
So, you know, I'm like, I'm going to go to an art gallery this time. I'm going to go to this. And also, start... New York in the summer is such a specific cocktail of, like, ignorant and beautiful. Yeah. And, like, just every everyone is outside. So that was a crazy thing to go through at 23. And suddenly, um, I keep hearing this guy's name, Eddie Wong. And I see him on Twitter and I see him on TV. And I'm like, who is this guy? And, like, you know, he, 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 he sounded like and he talked a lot like a lot of my high school classmates. But, wait, he was getting book deals for... For, wait, like, I know, like, a grip of homies that sound like him and, like, talk like him. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I guess he has a really sick web, like, restaurant, right? So they talk about Bauhaus, and so I'm like, okay, cool. I'm, you went to Bauhaus? So, like, I was li- I was staying off the Morgan L train at times. So, like, I think it was, like, one day, it was, like, so it was July 16th, um, and um, it was 10.30 a.m., and I'm like, okay, about to make the trek. To go to, <laughs> to the, the East Village, village. <laughs> to go to Bauhaus. It's 10.30 a.m. Like, I'm being like a fucking goober about this. I'm like, this, I guess, like, this is, like, his this restaurant is the day. Is t- yeah, this is the day. His restaurant's tight, I guess, right? And he seems like a cool guy. So, you know, I time it right so that, like, by the time I get there and I've walked around and stuff, like, Bauhaus opens for lunch. And so I order three bows. And, um... No disrespect to Eddie at all. <laughs> I was really wondering where you were going to go with this. But I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. I, you know, the t- the 10 of the best restaurants, Chinese restaurants in America, eight were right outside of my parents' house. I was like, what? Like, am I missing something? Like, this is all right. It's not bad, but it's okay. But, you know, I feel bad for saying this, but I think maybe he would agree. Like, like having, I'm, I'm sure he's been to San Gabriel Valley too, that like the food's pretty good there. But so... But it clicked. I was like, I, I went home and I just thought about it. Like, why did I want to go to that restaurant? Mm. Why did I? Why did it already taste good in my head before it even? Because he had a really compelling story and he was just unapologetically himself. And also the store too. It's like yeah. very like, it's such a vibe. So, to put yourself in my shoes, I get arrested for graffiti. Um, you know. I convinced my probation officer that, like, look, I'm going to do something with this this talent I have. I swear to God, right? And so I get into a really prestigious art school. Um, and, like, for those who don't know, like, I've also just been, like, web designing since I was a teenager, too. So it was just, like, the easiest, like, kind of entryway in. Like, I had a lifelong, I have a lifelong love affair with fonts and letters and stuff, right? Yeah, you don't just randomly get no, into it. No, I don't it. randomly yeah, get yeah. in. So, it's like, I don't want to be, like, like a TED, I don't want to make this, like, a TED talk. Like, oh, God, I'm like, <laughs> but... It, it, I, I worked hard for a year to get into art school. And so I get in and I'm still like that Asian, like Asian, like kid mindset. Like, yo, what's up? I'm Eric. Like, I love graphics. Like, yo. And um, that's not the school to do that at. It was just like a really strict curriculum. And it's also like there were only like three people that were in my class, like out of high school. Um, it's a little bit different now, but Art Center was mostly for people on their second bachelor's. Right. And so the average age of entering freshman at the time was 27 years old. So me being that like dumb 18 year old class clown got old really quickly. Um, so everyone is there to fucking yeah. just learn, get out, get a job and just. Yeah. yeah. So basically the first day of school, like this was my outfit. Like I had a faux hawk. I had like two stud earrings. Um, I had like a hundreds T-shirt. I had a creative, Oh, my God. That's so cute. I had like first wave like streetwear. Yes. Like, 
I had like creative recreation sneakers. Like, wow. I, you know, like I thought like I had the whole fit. Right? Wow. You really are from the suburbs if you thought creative yeah, recreation. I know. So it was just like, <laughs> like yo. PF flyer. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I thought I was like fly. By the second week, I, I had my hair in a pomp and I was wearing a cardigan. And like, did you have a lot of reinventions as a little kid too? Yeah, yeah. yeah you so were that kid. Basically, I just became like the graphic design student. Like by week two, I learned very quickly that like mm, I was get like you a, fish a tote the bag. Yeah, I got the tote bag. I got the parka. I got like the Clark Desert boots. Like you know, like I just the whole. I was just like, oh shit! Like I got it. Like because it was like I made such a big stink to my parents about going to art school that if I like don't do well, like I'm gonna look. I'm gonna be like. I'm going to lose face. And You're so, going to lose face. And I mean, as an Asian, what more is there? You're yeah. going to lose face. I'm yeah. going to lose face. And so that traveled, that carried with me all the way to like grad school. And so here I was again in the Oxford shirt button up and like the raw I cannot used, even imagine. Um, in my mascot frames and like. Did you have like the little like red tab salvage cuff? Yeah, I had Ew. the whole. So I had that. I had the Filson bag. Like <laughs> I have a Filson bag, but my, I've just, had mine for 15 years. You know, I felt like I was cosplaying. And so when mm. they were like, well, like you're trying to be this Dutch designer and you're not like I was like, yeah, they're right. And so suddenly Eddie's just acting like how I acted in high school. And I, it was just like, wait, you could just be successful just being yourself. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, so that day, like, I had a Twitter account, but it was private. And it was me just reposting design articles. And then, like, that day I made it unprivate. And then I was like, who gets on my nerves? I'm going to start some shit with them. And I just started, like, starting shit with them. And, like, suddenly, like... By the end of that summer, like my Twitter account had caught people's attention. Like, yo, this guy's like really funny. And I started in like my second year started in school. Did you know you were funny? Because you're actually like hysterical um, and quick. Like I'm on a group chat with you. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's funny to talk about, I guess. But like, like, I mean, I only say that because like a lot of graphic designers are just assuredly very not. It's like being friends with yeah. architects. I'm like, oh my God. I, I wasn't funny in school. I like I think if you talk to people that weren't my friends that had class with me, they, they all thought I had to stick up my ass because I again I was there to like really study. But again that always that all contributed to a disconnect because I was the class clown in high school. Like it's funny enough because I was I was voted like me and this 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 woman Sherry Shu, she goes by Sherry Cola now. She's a comedian. Um, she's on like the I Love Dick like television series. Like both of us were voted most funny. She was always ten times funnier. Like I would say a joke and she would one up it, and I would be so furious that it was like ten <laughs> times funnier than anything I came up with. But I mean, both of us were like voted like most outgoing, which was basically like, the, like we were both the class clowns. Mm. Um, so like I'd be lying to say if there wasn't like documentation of me telling jokes before, but. But so, um, but there's been lapses where you're kind of in this dissociative stage. You were just like less organic yeah. to all of that stuff. I yeah. mean, so it's it's funny that because you're like coming home to New York, and by and large, there's so much going on with you that's been a homecoming. That's yeah. been like gradual. It's it, it's really it's really interesting. But yeah, like like I you know Eddie taught me that it's okay to tell jokes again. I guess like <laughs> um, and. A lot of the reason why I'm like a visible designer isn't necessarily because I do interesting work. I like to think that I do, but a lot of it is that like people like to like my online personality. And the person that gave me that permission was Eddie, seeing another Asian guy, you know, being unapologetically himself. Like, do I agree with everything he's done? Do I agree with all his viewpoints? No, but I don't think you do either. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like 
I was I was a 24 year old kid. I found out about Bauhaus. I read his book, and when I finished that book, I was just like, I'm going to be myself, and my life has been different ever since. Oh my god, I just love how we say words like representation. Yeah. But you loot, you have semantic satiation for it and you forget what that actually means anecdotally and experientially. There's a lot of Asian American activists that really talk down about representation. And like, yeah, it isn't the most important issue all the time, but like... There's so much assigned privilege, I think, that goes on. Yeah, but like, fuck you if you don't think that's... Fuck you if you don't think that's important. Especially from, from the standpoint of like, there's a lot going on here about just like cis het... Asian dudes as a part of the diaspora yeah. here and like what that actually means. And like you and I have had many a conversation over dinner with other Asians about like Asian male rage and what yeah. that means. And so I do think that these are like larger conversations yeah. that are really valid they and need important. to be tempered and whatnot too. Yeah. Like, I mean, yes, there's a titration aspect to yeah. it, but like, and a lot of the whole, like, Oh, um, you know, a lot of also like Asian issue discussions are just such like, they're just so loaded with just like casual misogyny, like just so much like, miso- and so much ownership, backwards like, ideas. Like the idea, like Asian men getting mad at Asian women dating white men, is so fucking stupid. You know. Well, that's the ownership I'm talking yeah, about. It's, the, it's just and but then the flip side of it is like when that conversation comes up, it makes it really impossible to have the opposite conversation yeah. or like the the complimentary conversation where it's like as an Asian woman married to a white guy, I want to be able to talk about how fucked up that is. Yeah. But I can't in the face of like some like total like MR Asian type going off. And like, I'm like, I'm not saying you're a hundred percent invalid. I'm saying like, can we have a conversation? You're picking a number out of the incel jar on who to like, cat, <laughs> like cat for it. Like, exactly. you know, and it's like, it's just, in, it's incels of color. Like, no, totally. And there's nothing sort of more trash than the lack of sort of like, yeah. Recognition of that. It, it's, it, you know, to me, I don't really think I ever had a deep issue with it. I feel like I kind of like intuitively understood, like, why would I want to date somebody that reminds me of my abusive dad or my abusive brother? Like in my head, I was just like, I'm not saying this is me. Like, but I mean, there was kind of like that too. Like, I mean, for a long, for a, a long string of time, like, you know, like, um, I didn't want to date someone that like reminded me of my mother for like very, like, for and now you know it, it's the best way. <laughs> no, yeah. And it, it, but it's, it's just like, I think there was always just like a, Oh yeah. Like, I'm not saying that's the reason. That, well, I think why, that, that but I think like, there's I, so much assigned privilege that yeah. sometimes it's such a barrel of crabs. And so it's like, almost like, you know, if I go to a party and everyone there is white, except for one Asian woman, I don't know if that Asian woman yeah. is down for me or not. Like, I'm just like, what kind of thing is this? I mean, there's a reason why like white supremacists are like, but Asian chicks are fine. Like all of that shit. I think it gets to a place where sometimes like we get really sus about the privilege that we're assigned. And we yeah. don't think that anyone else can come with us. And the way that looks is that sometimes we're like very like self-hating and like, and then so shameful around that self-hating. There's, there's really, the East Asian thing is really funny too, because like what I've been very fortunate about recently is that like meeting other Asian people and just saying like, hey, we have to like support each other and build. It wasn't like that for the longest time. Like you got to be like the exception and you that got to was be the exception. And like you were very territorial of it. Like I would walk into like, I walk into, this is LA too. Like I would walk into like a cool, like underground music show in LA 
And I would see another Asian person, and we both would be on edge because it's like, how the fuck did you get in here? <laughs> We're like, yo, no, no I'm the I'm Asian the person one. Yeah. It took me so hard to get in here. How the fuck, you know, like, like you had that, like, stare at each other. Like, oh, yeah. And that's something that I really hope that we can change because it's a thing that we do wrong all yeah. the time. And it's so brainwashed and it breaks my heart. It, it took years to unlearn, you know, that, like, territorial, like, threatened shit. Like, it was really funny, too, because, like... um, I remember there's this conversation like so for those that don't know like the student the current students have a big say in who gets accepted to Yale next year. Oh, um, that's interesting. So like all of us are part of the admissions committee like all the students like and they're giving a they they like we look at every application and we give them a rating and whatnot. And there was this funny conversation between me, a couple of Chinese classmates and a couple of Korean classmates. Well, we're like, "Oh, who did you think was good?" And then one of my Korean classmates was like, well, I have to give a Korean person like a perfect score. And then the Chinese kids all looked at each other like, oh, we were getting, getting all the Chinese kids zeros. And that showed like a very different kind of Whoa. approach. Like the Chinese kids were harsher on other Chinese kids. And then the Korean students, I didn't want to generalize, but I think we were, I think all the Korean students and all the Chinese kids were all talking to each other at that time. But the Korean students were like, no, no, we got to like get a Korean person in. And we we're like, no, no, we got to, like make sure that the Chinese person is representing us correctly. That's fascinating. Do you think it's because there's more Chinese people um, and I, there's more like history? I think there's just like, I think in general, um, collectivization is just really hard for Chinese culture. Like number one, there's so oh, many dialects. True. Yeah. Um, it's also just like there's China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Like the Chinese speaking world is just fractured. I mean, it's a continent. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just fractured. And so there isn't like a, a Chinese American solidarity as much as there is like with a Japanese or Korean American I mean, Koreans, too, like, you know, like, we're a bisected country that's suffering. Like, we're really, like, and, like, just the sheer number of times that we've been invaded without having ever invaded anyone else. I mean, it's really bad because, like, I I say I'm Taiwanese and I say I'm Chinese depending on the situation. Like, I I flow in and out of that. Is that a code switching thing or is that more like... Why is that? Number one, I think a lot of times when I say I'm Chinese, when I say I'm Taiwanese, it gets certain Chinese people really, like certain Chinese people get really mad. Are you fucking serious? Yeah. That makes me angry for some reason. Like. Like in life? Yeah, in life. Like I've lost friends. No way. I've lost friends for that People our age or your age? Yeah, younger, younger, younger and more progressive and more liberal too. Holy shit. that, That kind of indoctrinization is wild to me. Yeah. Like. It's, it's, I never knew that. Like, I just don't want to get into it all the time. Sure, so sure. sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I'm Chinese. Like, wow. it, you know, or like if. I thought this would be maybe for like elders or something. No, no, no. It's like the Taiwanese Chinese thing happens all the time. Like, it's also like I have like Chinese clients. And so sure. like I'll start sweating, you know, like, like I'll see Phil post all the stuff that's going on with Hong Kong. And yeah. I'm like. I'm so glad he put some, like, yeah. trigger warnings on those. Like, it's been so gnarly. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Hong Kong and just, like, seeing parts of, like, Shaw Tin. And it's just yeah. been so, so it's, wild. It, it, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, I, I get the both, but it's also my family's divided by that, too. Half my family's extremely pro-China. Half my family's extremely Taiwanese independence, you wow. know. And so, like... Like, I, 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 I sometimes I have the privilege of just saying w- when it's convenient. Like, are you Chinese? I'm like, yeah, 
yeah, sure, why not? Like, <laughs> right. And then when you're, but it's also like the English language has a really hard time separating ethnicity from like nationality. Absolutely. I and mean, the English it, language is very like, yeah. It's, it's much easier time. to do so in Mandarin to say that like I I am of Chinese ethnicity, but my but of Taiwanese nationality. Like it's so easy to say that in two words, mm. you know. Or we have a term called overseas Chinese, and they get it, you know. Right, right, like right. Like Chinese diaspora. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I mean, like, I grew up in Hong Kong, so, yeah. yeah, like, even within English, you would just be very honest about, like, mainland China is one thing, and, yeah, yeah we are this other thing. Um, I have a question in terms of, I have a few questions about, like, self-care and stuff. Yeah. Because we're big into that. Um, you know, you work with Mold, uh, the food magazine founded by our friend Lin Yi Yuan, mm-hmm. who is, I think, one of the most, like, powerful editors in terms of like vision and also like getting shit done. Yeah. Um, I read an interview with you at the time of the launch and you said that um, food was quote, sort of a proxy for a lot of social interactions between people and it's inherently very political. And I was wondering how your thoughts about food, ha- food have evolved or been informed by like you going vegan about a year ago. Oh yeah. Um, and like, how does it contribute to your like happiness and sense of like safety in your body and stuff? Cause we talk about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, going vegan is like, I think that and quitting drinking are the two best decisions I've, I've made for myself. Like if like, that's the thing I'm most proud of, like it, like that I've been able to just finally do. Do you ever um, struggle with like the optics of both those things? Yeah. I, it's the reason why I had to switch back from an Android to an iPhone because like, the whole you like, can't be vegan and have an android no vegan, kidding <laughs> like, it was like you can't well it's just like literally people thought i was like a serial killer like you know like ten, like people on tinder people on tinder thought i was just like like not real right green bubble and vegan and, and i don't sober. Drink. like it was just like you know the conversation would be like hey let's meet up at this restaurant cool just to let you know i can't eat charcuterie because i'm vegan but i don't care if you do um then they're like Okay, cool. We can just get some drinks. Cool. Just to let you know, I don't drink too, but I don't care if you do. All right, we'll just play it by ear. What's your number? Oh, here's my number. And then they text me and it's a green bubble. And it's just like, pick one, dude. Like, you, know, you can't be all things. Yeah. Like, I mean, Phil would, disagree, Phil would disagree. Well, he's, he's, a Google, he's a pixel person for life. Yeah. Phil would disagree, but like, I lost all my friends. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, I just had to be back on the iPhone. Well, you know what? Like, I would say as someone who is sober and has an yeah. eating disorder. So it's like if someone's like, let's eat pie. I'm like, I don't mind if you do, but I will not. I usually just wait until I meet the person. Yeah. Um, and then I just, I'm just like, I'm really insecure about all of these things telling you this. And I feel a lot of shame. So if you feel weird, like we can talk about it. Yeah. I, um, it's, it's just like it, it the optics of it, it's like really funny and it's weird that i'm like like going plant-based for like health reasons because like but like, like it's not health reason like health reasons like because you were like walking around with like a panic meat suit yeah yeah i think like yeah i you know like i mean you look so different as bananas yeah i i've i've lost a I've lost 75 pounds at this point. Like it's like I'm about to lose 80 and it, and this is since March. So yeah, 8 months like I don't want to be triggering but like having lost a substantial amount of weight does that give you this moment of like Jesus, how unhappy was I before? Um yeah, nothing tastes as good as how I feel right now. Like that's <laughs> that's everyone's like do you miss this or that? I'm like sometimes, but like 
Well, I, when the like, self-soothing with food and different things stops working, then you just remember the anguish. Yeah, I just like, I stress eat, you know, mm-hmm. like, like I would, like, it's not, but I don't necessarily wish I stress starved, you know, but. There's a like, lot of violence in stress eating. Like, it's, yeah. like when you actually remember what that action felt like and how much bodily harm you were doing. Like I would go home, I would like go on Seamless and it's like, yeah, give me those like curly fries. Give me like that fried chicken burger. Give me like fucking dessert. And I'm just going to like inhale this whole thing. And numb out. Yeah, and numb out and like have a glass of wine. You know? Yeah, there's like a joylessness to that after yeah. a while. It was it, it was just like I just had a really problematic relationship to food all my life. And um, I think one, it was like being raised by like a maternal grandmother who was a hoarder. Mm-hmm. But two, being raised by a mother who worked in fashion. So there's always a shame element tied to food. Um, what did your parents do? So my dad sells life insurance and he's a financial planner. Okay. Um, and my mom... My mom majored in German literature, but she ended up, um, so she ended up in the women's wear industry. And so Teutonic and fashion, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> so she, so she has a, she basically has a boutique in the San Gabriel Valley and she sells like Prada, Fendi, um, like just like luxury brands to like middle-class Asian women and gets like, gets the more knowledgeable and tries to get them to have better taste. And so my earliest memories were being at her store um, and she would put me in the back room and give me a stack of Vogue magazine with a pair of scissors and ask me to make collages out of the models that I liked. And she would frame the models, like my collages in her store. Wow. Um, so I think there was just always this like kind of so many things relationship yeah. to fashion, but there's always just this like, she, you know, bless her heart, but she made like a really like, she made a comment that just like stung me to my core like when I was younger. And I think maybe like it's becoming very clear right now that I don't like I'm a person that holds grudges, I guess. But what was it? Um, it was around the time like, you know, we were really caring. Like I'm 13. Like we really started caring about like I started caring about how I dress, you know, like I wanted like the Chris Nike sneakers. I wanted like I ironed my jeans. I had like the baggy football jersey. I spent like 20 minutes on my hair, et cetera. And, you know, it was stressing my mom out. Like, you know, I wanted my shirt a specific way. I wanted like this and that. Like I asked, like I, I wanted like laundry done like, like all the time. Well, you need your, your suit of armor to yeah, be a certain I didn't way. Yeah, I didn't want stuff to shrink and stuff. And my mom just out of frustration was just like, what's the point of dressing nice if you're fucking fat? You know, it's just like, th- that just like destroyed me. And I like was afraid of fashion for a long, long time. And like, it is. It was kind of made me afraid of essence too. Like, I was just like afraid of fashion since then, and and now like I, I've fallen in love with it again. I know but... you were. You're wearing such a cute outfit today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've fallen in love with it again, but it took a long time. Like, I, you know, it's something that I always wanted, and like my, I tell the story to my mom all the time. Like, she she knows. Like, she feels horrible about it. Like, et cetera. But, um, I think there's always just a shame element tied to food, and there's a shame element tied to like caring about how do you, how you present yourself. And that played out in my life in like very interesting ways. But I think in terms of politics and stuff, like I don't think much has like changed. I, I do think like, you know, veganism is like an extreme privilege and you get to really see that kind of exercise out. Like I really makes me more conscious of food deserts of like, you know, is it cheaper to feed a family of four with McDonald's or with apples? Like it's, like obviously the answer is McDonald's, right? So it's made me more conscious of my privilege. It's made me more conscious of 
things like that. But on another level, it's maybe more conscious of the environment, like the food chain, how much resources goes into animal farming and things like that. So, And also, like, if you're not constantly in, like, GI distress or discomfort, yeah. it changes everything. It's really interesting because now I have to deal with, like, having been, like, more or less a victim of fat phobia for, like, a good chunk of my life, like, not trying to perpetuate it now. And so, like, making sure that I'm always trying to talk about things from a health perspective. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, like, I'm, I like how I look now or, like, you know. I think it's, I think it's okay to like yeah. how you look now. I do feel better. I like how I, I, I'm more comfortable in my own skin now. I'm more confident, like, and I'd be lying if that wasn't a thing that kept going. Because, like, I normalized my blood pressure a long time ago. I normalized, like, I reversed my prediabetes, like. So you were, like, full on in, like, on the trajectory yeah. for, like, obesity. Yeah. I, well, I was I was in a category of morbidly obese already. Wow. Um, you never really think of that about, like, your friends, I guess. Yeah. I, I was considered morbidly obese. Um, and I would get, like, little, like, anonymous, like, messages in Instagram, you know, people calling me fat and stuff. Or, like, I would get, like, anonymous messages from Tumblr going, like, you look very, like, you know, like, you, you, like, you look awful now and you need to be careful. If it weren't for a couple of friends that placed some, like, very important interventions that helped get me to think about things, um, I wouldn't have taken care of myself better. But it really took a health scare. So, like, in March, like, I went to the hospital because um, I had a hypertensive crisis. You wow. know? I had a I had a blood pressure reading of 190 over 110. It was just like if you're if it's just a little PSA, if your blood pressure is over 180, like the first the top number on the little monitor, go to the hospital. But yeah, I I I, I needed to go to the hospital, and that was after a week long bender in Taipei, where I was eating all like the pulled pork noodles and mm -hmm. like all like the deep fried Chinese food, and I was like partying you know and like you know getting drunk all night and then i went back to work and i was just like feeling so weird and um so i just order a blood pressure monitor on amazon god because like, you don't want to go out there and like yeah yeah so i feel really weird it gets there the next day i'm still feeling weird and i put the monitor on and it basically says go to the hospital <laughs> In like red letters. Yeah, it, it just it just ha it just had like a it has like a green light, a yellow light, and it gave me a red light, and I was like, okay, I gotta go to the hospital. So I'm casually telling Phil, like, hey, I'm going to the hospital. I have a like I'm in a group chat with my friend Phil and Hassan, and uh, I'm like, hey, I'm going to the hospital. I have a blood pressure emergency, and they're really like amazing. They're just like, hey, like stay calm. Yeah. Um, you're gonna be okay. And then I texted my other close friend Matt. And I was like, hey, I'm going to the hospital. I have a blood pressure emergency. And he goes, oh, shit. Holy <laughs> fuck. And like, he's like, oh, no. And uh, so, yeah. uh, you know, I was getting both sides to it. And so I was in the way. And so I get to the hospital. I get to the emergency room. I bring my blood pressure monitor. I'm like, hey, I got this number. And they put me in the front of the line. So that's wow. when I really start freaking out because they like made me jump across the line. Um, so then they get my blood pressure under control with drugs and stuff. But I'm in the waiting room. And you're young and you're yeah. like on blood pressure medication yeah. and like. Yeah. And so I'm in the group chat and Phil's just like, is everything okay? And I was like, this is either the, I either make this the best thing that happens to me or I make this the start of the worst things to happen to me. And that's my decision right now. And then so I just, I, um, 
you know, I, I, I do some research on the internet that night. And this is all in Portland? Yeah. Okay. And I, and so I, you're like kind of out there. I'm, I'm at a company that I'm, at, I'm, I'm also working somewhere where people like to exercise too. So it's like another, the whole thing about addiction and stuff is like who you surround yourself with too. Well, you're, and, and it's shameful and sometimes that completely yeah. amplifies the shame and then yeah. you're only as sick as your secrets and it's a yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So there's there's definitely two sides to it. But, you know, I, 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 I watched this documentary, Forks Over Knives on Netflix. And by the end, I'm just crying. Like, I'm just in tears. I hate, oh God. So you were diagnosing yourself and you just had that recognition. Well, I think the good thing about that, that documentary was that a lot of documentaries try to scare you. Like, this is what happens if you keep becoming unhealthy. But they, that documentary was the opposite. This is what happens when you start making healthy decisions. And it showed Mm -hmm. people on the brink of death, like literally being normal. And I just started crying because I was like, yo, I want this so bad. Like, I I don't want to feel this way anymore. Like, I felt this way for years. Like... You know, there, there was like, I think like between 2014 and 2016, I didn't want to look in the mirror. Like I always looked down when I was like in the restroom. Like I, I couldn't look at myself in the face. It was, it was, so it was, it was that weird denial where I'm like, no, I look fine. But like, I'm like, why am I like, then why am I not giving myself eye contact? You know? So, um, and yeah, I, I think eight months later, here I am. But the thing about weight loss is that it's the hardest part is maintaining it. So it's like, it's not even over yet. Like it's actually just begun. The hard part is like right now, just like maintaining it. So it's like, I don't want to be celebratory yet. No, but I feel like having the mindfulness around the recognition of that is like such a huge part of it. And just being aware. Yeah. It's not like hypervigilance. It's just, you know, awareness and a day at a time and easy does it. Yeah. What was really crazy is how much mental health it was going to do. Like the magnesium advice helped, but like this really took it. Um, you were saying that you're having like so many fewer panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Yeah, I don't really have them anymore. Um, oh, that's beautiful. So I think like six weeks into it, I was just walking down the street and I just realized that I was like hearing like birds chirping and oh like, my God, all like the things. wind blowing in cars. And I just realized there was nothing in my head. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about anything. And I was just like so happy. And, and I was like, oh my God, this is what it's like for a lot of people. Like not having like chatter in your brain. And um, I mean, there are other things too. Like I, I, through my health discovery, I realized I had sleep apnea. And a lot of times that manifests itself in ADHD symptoms. So like that also helped after I started wearing a CPAP mask to go to bed. Um, But yeah, a lot of it was just like, it's really crazy. Like taking care of body also ends up taking care of your mind. Yeah, totally. And uh, my mood's been a lot better, my concentration. But the best thing is now is that, like, I could be in a car and I'm not checking my phone. Um, I could wait in line and I'm not checking my phone. I'm walking down the street. I'm not listening to music. I'm just, like, looking around and just taking things in. And that's just been, that's been the wildest thing. Yeah, when your mind stops hijacking your body. Yeah, it's it's... the whole Eckhart Tolle thing of, like, there's physical time and there's psychological time. And like you're either like ashamed of your past or you're worried about the future and you're very rarely just absorbing the present moment. And I'm just doing that a lot more now. Yeah. If you're living in the past, then you're depressed. And if yeah. you're living in the future, you're anxious. Yeah. So what other recourse is there? But um, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show. This is yeah, such my a pleasure. wonderful discussion. And I'm so glad you're home. I'm in love with my Hey Cool Job is recorded at Red Bull Arts New York. Special thanks to Hassan Insane, Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and the song you hear is I'm in Love with My Life by Phases. <laughs>